Hey folks, I just want to let you know about my upcoming book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. If you're looking for a job or you think you might be looking for a job in the future and you're trying to up your mobility and meet new people and things like that, this book walks you through the whole process. So go ahead and check it out. It comes out on November 20th. It'll be on Amazon and you can find it as The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of My JavaScript Story. This week we're talking to Douglas Crockford. Douglas, do you want to say hello? Hello. Do you want to just remind people who you are? We had you on episode 392 and we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. 392, that was a good one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, let's see, so I'm, I'm Douglas Crockford. I'm the person who discovered that JavaScript has good parts. <laughs> that's the first important discovery of the 21st century <laughs> uh, I, I can so appreciate that yeah when I first announced my findings people were extremely skeptical that no way there can't possibly be any good parts in this language but yeah. it's since been verified in fact there are some very very good parts some of the best parts ever put into a programming language are in JavaScript nice this episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, I remember, man, early, early when I was just getting into web development. Yeah, JavaScript was in the browser. It was in the 90s. And yeah, I mean, we just use it to like make text blink or something. <laughs> I had no idea it was going to become this big thing. Oh, yeah, nobody did. I mean, there, there were theories back then that there were some things you had to do in Java and some things you do uh -huh. in JavaScript. For example, in JavaScript, you could not do a slider just can't right. do it. So anything that requires a slider has to be written in Java. <laughs> now it's just part of the browser. It, it, you do everything in JavaScript. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this show, it's, it's going to be interesting, I think, just to dive into your, your story in JavaScript. And we got some of this in the episode that we did. But yeah, th this show is really about just kind of capturing uh, the, the person behind the discussion that we had. And so I, I kind of want to... Uh, go back a little bit before JavaScript and find out how you, how you got into programming. I uh, started programming in college. So I, I went to San Francisco State University, uh, majoring in radio and television. And I went there because they had one of the best television departments in the world. They just built a new teaching studio and it was state of the art. Well, it wasn't quite state of the art in that they were still doing black and white, but mm -hmm. it, it was way ahead of what was happening at USC or many other schools. Right. But it was also the most expensive major per student at the university. And so it was hard getting into classes. So my first year, I couldn't get into the studio. Oh, wow. So uh, 
okay, so I'll do my general studies first year. And one of the requirements was for math, and one of the ways of, of satisfying that was Fortran. So I took a Fortran class. Uh-huh. And at that time, it was uh, punching cards and submitting them to the mainframe in the library. And I was really good at it. And I, I really enjoyed it. So I took the second class and then the third class, and then that's all there was because uh, computer science didn't exist yet, at least not right. at that school. So I self-taught the rest of it. Oh, wow. That's, that's how I got into programming. That, that's amazing. So uh, you, you get in, you're punching cards. I mean, how does this become a career in software development? Uh, so in, in that first semester, I recognized that there's going to be a convergence of television and computing. Uh-huh. That, that was really clear to me. I, it didn't make sense to anybody else I talked to, but I knew that was going to happen. And so a lot of my career has been bridging those two things. Like uh, the year I, years I spent at Atari, the years I spent at Lucasfilm, and some of the stuff I've done since, that was all about doing that, you know, uh, helping the evolution toward digital media. Right. Interesting. So, so were you writing for Atari and things like that? or uh, I worked at Atari. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I spent two years in their corporate research lab in Sunnyvale. Oh, wow. And I would have been really happy to stay there longer, except the company melted down and I had to move Ooh. on. <laughs> so where did you wind up after Atari then? After Atari, I went to Lucasfilm. Oh, okay. Uh, which was great. Lucasfilm was a great place to work. I was uh, director of technology there. I was there uh-huh. for eight years. And a lot of my job was to look at new emerging technology and determine if it was going to be fun enough. Fun enough. <laughs> right. Is that really a standard they have over there? Or? Uh, that was my standard. Oh, okay. It's just, it's, it's interesting, you know, cause yeah, you think about it and it's, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the times it's, is this going to solve our problem? Is it going to solve it cheap enough? Is it going to be fast enough? Is it, you know? Yeah. I was working for an entertainment company. And so there are lots of consumer electronics companies coming to us, hoping that we'll endorse whatever thing they're, they're working on. Right. But before they'd get that endorsement, I would look at it and see, is this really going to be something we want to get behind? Right. Gotcha. It's, it's kind of interesting to just kind of, you know, cause I mean, my exposure to you has been almost entirely JavaScript based. And so to think about some of these other technologies in this run up to, a career in JavaScript, um, you know, I, I guess we just don't think about those things because it's not within the context we usually move in. Yeah, and that's the odd thing because I always tried to be a generalist. I, I trained myself to be a generalist, but I'm best uh-huh. known as being a specialist in something that I would never have picked. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I never wanted to be the JavaScript guy, right? I, right? I never had a campaign, this is how I can take over the JavaScript field, I can get in front of this thing. It was never like that. Uh-huh. Uh, circumstance had me do stuff in it and learn it and discover what no one else seemed to understand about it. And then I was the JavaScript guy. Gotcha. So I guess the other question I have is, you know, what, what did you do in the run-up to getting involved in JavaScript? So in the early 1990s, I founded a company with two partners called Electric Communities. Uh-huh. And we were developing secure distributed systems for social interaction and commerce on the internet. 
turned out to be a little early for doing that kind of stuff, but right. we did that. And we had a run of about eight years. Mm-hmm. Toward the end, we were approached by Turner Broadcasting. They were developing a collectible trading game for children based on Cartoon Network. Oh, interesting. And they asked us to help them develop the technology because they were aware of some of the stuff that we were doing. Uh-huh. So I went out to Atlanta and looked at what they were doing. And we had the stuff that they needed, but we didn't have the client technology that they needed. So uh, came back to, uh, where were we? We're in Cupertino. And, you know, what are we going to do? And the obvious thing was, well, let's write a Java client. Except we had already produced two Java clients for this platform, and they were both big disappointments. I didn't want to do that a third time. So I was like, well, what can we do instead? And I don't know where it came from, but I got this crazy idea. Maybe we could do it in the browser using dynamic HTML, which is something that I had never looked at before. So um, I hacked together a little demo where I could drag and drop some uh, cartoon characters onto a page. Mm -hmm. And we showed that to the people in Atlanta and they said, yeah, that's great. That's exactly the kind of thing we want. So, so, okay, great. Okay, so we're going to do this thing in JavaScript. Uh-huh. So I assembled my team. I said, okay, we're going to do this in JavaScript. So, you know, obviously some of us are going to be working on the server. Some of us are going to be mm-hmm. working on the browser. Who wants to work in JavaScript? And everybody took a step backwards. <laughs> there was no threat I could make to anybody that would get them to write the JavaScript. It was going to be, you know, so beneath them. They didn't want to be soiled in it. <laughs> They didn't want the loss of reputation. They were concerned right. that they'd never work again if they did a project in JavaScript. Everyone, n- nobody wanted to do that. So I had to do it. So I, I had to do the project. And, and I was cursing the whole time because I made the same mistake <laughs> that everybody else does. Of course you did. I, I didn't bother to learn the language first, right? It looked familiar. Yeah. I, I knew Java really well. I thought, yeah, I should be able to puzzle this out. It has semicolons. And, yeah. And it's got curly braces, you know, yeah. it's all there. Yeah. And it kept punishing me and it was really painful. Uh, I remember one occasion where I was so frustrated with it, I punched a cubicle wall and almost broke my hand. It's just, ah, I, you know, hating JavaScript. Mm-hmm. But we got it done and we delivered the project on time and we were paid and everything was great. So that was a really successful project. And then we started using that same technology for our own product. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, while we were developing all this stuff, the other half of the company was spending all the money we had made. Oh. And then the dot-com crash happened. And right. we were out of business, so I had to file for bankruptcy. And it turns out when you're going through bankruptcy, you've got a lot of free time. Mm-hmm. So I used that time to finally read the ECMAScript standard. Right. And it was like, oh, that's what's going on. So I kept having all these epiphanies like, oh, okay, that's why that didn't work. Right. And then, and the biggest one was I realized it had lambdas in it, that this mm-hmm. is basically scheme in C's clothing. And that totally changed my understanding of the language, that I've been right. doing everything completely wrong. Uh, I wrote uh, JS Lint at that time because I recognized the language has all of these problems and insecurities and I needed assistance in helping myself to manage those because it, it's a really dangerous language in that respect. Right. So um, that turned out really well. And 
eventually that led to writing a book about that stuff. That makes sense. It, it's really interesting just to kind of get the background on that too, where, yeah, I guess not fortunate circumstances, but you wound up in a place where, yeah, you had the time to go review the ECMAScript standard and then say, okay, if this is tripping me up, it's probably tripping other people up. And yeah, you wind up with something that looks like JavaScript, the good parts. Yeah, I wrote a few articles and I started giving lectures. And basically my perspective was, I want to be delivering what I wish I had had access to when I right. started. I wanted something which said, if you're a programmer and you think you understand how programming works, this is how you need to change your perspective if you want to use this language well. Right. Makes sense. How, how was the initial reception of that? Um, it was all over the place. So there are some people who really liked it, who really appreciate it. Um, I hear from people all the time saying, you know, thanks to you, I have a career and, and yeah. you know, always happy to hear that stuff. But there are also people who are extremely hateful about it, um, that they think in trying to promote a better way of doing this, that I'm criticizing them personally because they can't or, or won't do it, which was never my intention. You know, I, I've never called out anybody individually and said, this person is not living up to our standards or anything like that. I'm just trying to help everybody write better programs. Mm -hmm. But uh, we can get really emotional about this stuff. And so, you know, that happens. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know plenty of people that, yeah, they, they felt like you made JavaScript make sense. I know other people that were deep into it, you know, doing other things and they were just like, mm -hmm, he wrote a book. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so you get in, you write JavaScript, the good parts. Um, did, did that change things much for you? I mean, as far as, you know, your career trajectory, did you wind up feeling like you had to stay in JavaScript or? Um, no. So for most of my career, I, I just do what I want to do. Right. So that's uh, a pretty healthy way to go. Yeah. In in some places, my job was to float. In some places, I was just undermanaged and allowed to do whatever I thought mm -hmm. needed to be done. Um, so and, and that's what I've continued to do, and I'm still doing now. Now I'm self-employed, but I'm still doing that. If, I, if there's a problem that looks interesting to me, I'll work on that. So most of my attention right now is going to the post-JavaScript environment. You know, what, what's the next language going to be? We talked about that a bit last time. Um, so I'm happy to see that JavaScript's going well for mm -hmm. everybody, and, and I think that's great. There's a lot of stuff which makes, I think, sense to do in JavaScript more so than other languages. So that's right. good. But my, most of my focus now is going to the next step. Right. And we talked a little bit about Misty in the last um, episode that we talked through. One of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the Angular community. There are so many great people there. We've had a lot of them on Adventures in Angular over the last several years. And I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. We've talked to people on the Angular core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular. Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. Um, I'm curious, 
you know, you, you wrote uh, how JavaScript works recently, but you've been spending most of your time. It sounds like working on Misty. So mm -hmm. how, how much time do you wind up splitting these days between um, the JavaScript world and the Misty world? Um, it's hard to say because it, it, my current outlook is that the next language is informed by JavaScript. That okay. There are some things that JavaScript got right that definitely should be communicated into the next language. Right. And the approach that I see most other people taking is they want to take the mistakes that the other languages made and reincorporate them into JavaScript. Uh-huh. So in that respect, I'm way out of the mainstream right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm trying to do something which is abstract or subtractive and extending and everyone else is just trying to pile on features. Yeah, that's fair. It's interesting too, because, you know, coming from a Ruby background and having done, you know, a few of the other languages, some of the things they're pulling in, it's like, yeah, that's a powerful feature out of whatever language that, you know, I saw it in C, C++ or C Sharp or Java or Ruby or something else. But there were some things about it that made it really hard mm -hmm. <laughs> to use properly, right? And so you'd get in and you find out that you have a five pound hammer for a little nail you're putting in the wall to hang a picture up with. Yeah, so in how JavaScript works, I did two things. One was my thinking about the language has changed in the 10 years since I wrote the first book. And so I wanted to document that. And mm -hmm. it also gave me a place to experiment with the new language. So in the later chapters, I have a compiler and a runtime and things which are experimenting with a toy language, which might inform the next language. But also in the earlier chapters, I got to um, play with arithmetic and things which might have a strong impact on the next language, but ground them completely in JavaScript. And also going through the language again and deciding fresh, is this a good part or a bad part? That, that was a really useful exercise for me. Yep. So, so yeah, so you're building, I'm, I'm curious, you know, so is Misty going to be a simpler language? Should I be calling it Misty? Should I be calling it the next language? Yeah, uh, JavaScript went through a similar kind of identity crisis. <laughs> you know, for a while it was ES Next. You know, we, yes. we don't know what we're going to call it, but there's probably going to be another one. Um, and I, I'm sort of there. Yeah. So I've been I've been working on this language for like 40 years now. Right. So you know, as I learn things, I tear things up and put new things in, and my ideas have constantly been changing. And the main thing I'm trying to do now is to to get it smaller. You know, so. Right what is really essential here and what is just noise, that so much of what we do in syntax, for example, is just fashion. It's not functionality. We tell ourselves it's functionality, but it's not. It's, it's just style. And figuring out which of those things are real and which aren't is, is difficult. But um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I chose Misty as the name of the language because um, it's vaporware at this point. <laughs> and so I wanted yeah. the name to, you yeah. know, to, to be honest about where we are in, in the production of this thing. So it might finish with that name or it might finish with another name. It's had several gotcha. names over its life. Right. That makes sense. But yeah, uh, just from our conversations, a lot of the conversation has been around simplifying as opposed to adding features. And so um, when we talk about languages, a lot of times we're talking about the features, right? It's what features does it have? And it sounds like it might be just as germane to talk about what features it doesn't have. Um, but, but more than that, I really am interested in capturing the story. So how do you 
and, and your thought process, right? So how do you decide um, whether something goes in or comes out or whether it's even going to get considered in the first place? Um, I'm looking at the fundamentals. You know, what is it that you really need? And uh, you're going to have some simple types, like uh, some form of text, some form of numbers, mm-hmm. uh, probably Booleans. All the, or, so one argument that I was, or design exercise I went through about a year and a half ago was, do we need Booleans? Is that an extravagance or could we get rid of them? Because there's right. some languages like APL, which was a brilliant language, didn't have Booleans. Mm-hmm. Instead, you have dummies. So you use zero and one. Right. And that worked really well. And there were some, some specific things which were really convenient because they did that. Right. And so I went back and, and looked at that hard and tried to imagine two worlds, one with Booleans, one without, and tried to decide which is better. And after, for a while, I had taken Booleans out of MISTI, and now I've put them back in again. I, right. I think that they're actually uh, better than not having them. That makes sense. Another um, exercise I went through was, should we be starting at zero or one? You know, mm. the, the fact that programmers start counting at, at zero, most other people, including most mathematicians, start at one. And so that means whenever we talk to normal people, there's already a potential off by one yep. error. And is it worth it? You know, are, are we doing the right thing in starting at zero? And went very deep thinking about that. And finally, at the end, I decided, yeah, I think we have it right. It, it starts at zero and eventually we're going to teach the rest of the world to start counting at zero. Right. And, you know, maybe it'll take a generation or two, but I think the programmers will lead them because the <laughs> mathematicians still have decided if zero is a natural number. That's still controversial. Yeah. So, but we know, I mean, mathematicians, zero is where we start and there's no ambiguity about that for us. And so I think we can teach everybody else. This is how you do it. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm a little curious. I kind of want to go back again in time, uh, you know, to where you're you're reading the ECMAScript standard and things like that. And, you know, you've you've got experience from before JavaScript. And so I'm curious, you know, what 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 experiences did you have leading up to that that informed your experience there to say this is good, this is not good? You know, this is Lambda Calculus, this is, you know, C syntax, things like that. Yeah, so there were two really useful experiences for me. The, the first was, while I was in college, I learned Lisp. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a formal class in it. Um, I knew one professor who was trying to get it on the program, but not getting it, but I worked closely with her and managed to learn it. I went through the little Lisper and and it was great. So that that was a really important experience. And then later when uh, I started Electric Communities, we developed our own dialect of Java specifically for doing secure distributed applications because in our view, Java was not by itself a good enough language to do that. Mm-hmm. And so our, our dialect of Java was called E and E had closures in it. And so that oh, nice. gave me experience with using closures. So when I read the ECMAScript standard, which is a really difficult document to read, especially the ES3 edition, very, very difficult. (laughs) It was not written for humans to read. It was written for implementers. You know, this is how you implement. It doesn't talk about what's actually going on, except in excruciating detail. Um, So I, I read it 
And I remember one day I was out bicycling and I was running this back through my head and suddenly I realized it's got lambdas in it. Right. And I went back and, and read it carefully and yeah, it's got lambdas in it. It never says it has lambdas in it, uh, but it does. Right. And then I started telling people, it's got lambdas in it. And I said, no, that's, <laughs> come on, JavaScript? No, no way. But it does. And that's why JavaScript is an interesting language. That taking lambdas functions as first-class objects with lexical closure. So they're actually doing mm -hmm. scheme. And couple that with dynamic objects. That was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant combination. And I think that's the, one of the key things that happens in the next language. I think the other thing in the next language is going to be support for secure distributed applications. Right. Because all of our programming languages, going back to Fortran, are all in this simple sequential model where everything mm -hmm. is happening in one box. Yep. And the world doesn't look like that anymore. Uh, we've got lots of boxes sprayed all over the cloud and all over the, the internet. And even within a box, so lots of tiny boxes I was going to say, I have a little box in my pocket with a glass screen on it. Yeah. And it's got lots of little boxes in it's it. It's got little boxes inside. But our programming languages don't really understand that. Uh, Java tried to, to deal with that in giving us threads, but threads don't work. They're not an effective way of dealing with massive amounts of simultaneity. Yeah, it's, it's headaches. You're asking for headaches with threads. Yeah, and it's not reliable enough. We need something much more reliable. And so I think that mechanism needs to be a standard feature of the next mm -hmm. language. So basically I'm starting by taking JavaScript and removing everything in it that's bad and okay. then adding support for secure distributed processing. And I think that's the place to start for the next language. Cool. Very cool. Um, this is usually the point where I ask what people are working on now. So I'm kind of curious, is this kind of the big thing or are there other things that you're working on? Uh, it's, it's that, and I'll probably be doing some more books. Okay. About JavaScript or about something else? Uh, about related things. So right, right now I'm looking at a book about security, mm -hmm. and uh, there may be a book about MISTI at, at some point, and maybe a book about mathematics at some point. Okay. So one thing that I always wished for was a good book about mathematics for programmers. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was not a math major, but sometimes we brush against that stuff. <laughs> I always thought it was funny in my major, people would, I was a computer engineering major. And so people would go minor in math and I was like, so did you pass the other two classes? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I wanna write that book. Yeah, I like it. Similar to the way I wrote the book about JavaScript. You know, if you're a programmer and you need to learn JavaScript, what do you need to know? So it'll be, yep. if you're a programmer and you need to learn mathematics, what do you need to know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Cause yeah, they, they kind of put you through the math classes and it's really for a couple of, you know, ideas out of there more than anything else. And then you learn all this other stuff that you can't remember the next semester because you'd never <laughs> use it again. Yeah. So um, you need a, a cheat sheet for trig, right? You know, because yeah. you can't keep those formulas in your head. Not if you don't use them all the time. I uh, could for a day and then I'd pass the test. Yeah, exactly. So I, I want to put that stuff in there, you know, so right. if you're trying to solve these particular problems, this is what you do. And this is how you think about significance. And this is how you think about truth and, mm -hmm. and other things. I like it. Um, is there space for a formal logic class? There'll probably be some. Um, so as a programmer, I use the De Morgan laws all the time. And that, I think that's a fundamentally important thing to be able to do. You know, for example, to take a complex logical 
expression and invert it. Mm-hmm. And De Morgan tells us how to do that. Um, unfortunately, given in, in JavaScript, that can be a dangerous thing to do because De Morgan's rules do not always hold because of the type coercion rules, which is a problem in the next language. I want to fix that so that complete mathematical reasoning is not contradicted by the programming language. Right. Also things like solving for a variable. I, I, mm-hmm. That can be an important thing in programming where we got this thing and we need to tease it out of it so that we can assign something over there. Right. That, that you should have gotten that in basic algebra in high school, but some people didn't get it or some people don't remember it. So I'd like to review that stuff as well. Right. Makes sense. Then there's higher stuff like uh, matrices. Uh, matrix computation is now becoming a more and more important thing, partly because of AI, mm-hmm. but partly because it's really powerful stuff. Yep. And there are large classes of, of algorithms which can be trivially solved by matrices. And I, and I think they've been undervalued for a long time just because they were perceived as being expensive. Yeah. But you know, the APL language loved that stuff. You know, yeah. You, know, you well, can have a it, tiny little expression and it just will uh, convolve the matrices and do all this wonderful stuff. And I think that's going to start to come back. Well, I think the other thing is in a lot of this, because, you know, I've seen matrices and vectors and some of the other mathematical constructs available in C-based languages and things like that. And the problem is, is that, you know, again, people took the class, some of them did, but they don't remember how it all works. And so they don't see it as a solution that they can go reach for. Yeah, exactly. So maybe I can help. Yeah. Very cool. Where do I buy it? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, probably on Amazon, but it'll be a while. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. We're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else that you, I'm just, I'm always curious because you're one of the people that people actually, you know, get out and talk about. You know, a lot of the people we have on the show, you know, they're working on some project and, you know, and so people are talking about the project, they're not talking about the person behind it, you know, and so we give them a little bit of idea there, but are, are there things that have been said or done or talked about that you kind of want to set the record straight on? I'm just curious if that stuff's out there. So I've been accused of being opinionated. <laughs> but Can't the funny, imagine. But the, the people who make that accusation have no awareness that they are themselves opinionated. Uh-huh. So I don't know what the moral of that is, but yeah. No, that's fair. Um, I mean, we see this in a lot of other arenas in life too, right? Is that, you know, well, I want to be open-minded, but I'm not going to consider your opinion. Or it's, um, you know, that your opinionated really just means that we disagree on more than the normal person. Yeah. And it turns out most of what we disagree on is fashion. Yeah. And I'm trying to get past the fashion and, and get to what's really important. Yeah. 
I mean, we even see this in politics somewhere. We agree that there's a problem there, but not necessarily on how to solve it. Mm -hmm. And so we bring up specific areas where bad things have happened and it's like, okay, well, you know, yeah, what we're arguing about is not that those things shouldn't happen. It's yeah. How do we, how do we fix it? And some of it's substantive and some of it's not. Yeah. So I, I, I try to teach that we should be making programs that work well and are free of error. Mm -hmm. And that last bit really upsets people. Like, you know, what do you, you know, what exactly are you accusing me of? That kind of thing. But, <laughs> but Humanity, you're human. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm, I'm saying that's what we should be striving for. Yeah. And if we're putting yeah. anything above making our errors or making our programs error free, then we're not doing it right. Yeah, I agree. And so most of what I'm opinionated is based, is rooted in that. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out how to write good programs. Yep. That makes sense. Very cool. Well, we do picks on this show like we did on the other show. Uh, before we do that, do you want to remind people where to find information about you or what you're working on? Uh, yeah. So my personal website is crockford.com. Uh, most of what I'm working on is still in the shadows, so you're not going to see that, but you'll get links to everything I had been working on. Uh, my book is available on Amazon and uh, Google Play and maybe other places as well. There might mm -hmm. even be a bookstore that has it on a shelf, but I, I'm not aware of that. I don't know if that happens anymore. I really miss <laughs> bookstores. I used to love bookstores. I could spend hours yeah. in there. And one of the things I like least about the future is that they seem to have all disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's convenient to have it show up at your house, but yeah, there's a certain feel to it. And just just going in and not knowing exactly what you're going to run across. Yeah, just browsing and discovering. It's like, oh, I had yeah. no idea. I'm really interested in that. Yep. I, I missed that. Yep. Now, um, I was going to ask one more question before picks, and I forgot. So I'm going to ask it, and then we'll do the picks. And that is, if, if you and I sat down over lunch, and we weren't talking about programming, what kinds of things get Doug Crockford excited? Like, what, what kinds of things would we end up talking about? Uh, political reform. I think the two-party system has done terrible damage to our country. Uh, the only thing worse than the, than the, than the two-party system is the one-party system. So <laughs> Fair. We, we don't have that. But, yeah. um, you know, the, the two parties can agree that they like the two-party system. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not working for us. Um, there's this idea that your vote doesn't count. And we tell you, well, vote anyway, because it does count, but it doesn't count. And because of gerrymandering and because of the way districting works and, and the way the electoral college works, it doesn't count that it may be that it's impossible for you to vote for a representative and get him elected. You just can't because we have this 18th century idea about how we're organized geographically, which just doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. So I, I've been thinking a lot about how would we reform the way we do things? You know, if, if I could, write a constitutional amendment which would establish the Department of Elections. And if I could contract with NIST and NSA to come up with a new way of doing online elections, which would significantly shorten the election cycle and allow people to vote in a way which is not constrained to geographic limits, what could we do? Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a political... Uh junkie myself there are definitely things that i see wrong with that system and things that 
I, I think, I think it lends itself a little bit toward getting right, but yeah, it, it, I don't like having just two choices cause I never completely agree with either side. And yeah. in a lot of cases, I, I kind of generally agree maybe with, with one side more than the other. And so, yeah, I, I definitely see those issues and, and I would love to just pick your brain about the, the why and the how and the what, but we, we do not have time on this show and it's not what it's about anyway, but yeah. Um, do you, do you have then, I don't know if you've written stuff about this or if you think there are books out there that people should be reading and thinking through or things like that. That that's one thing that I'd be curious to hear about. Uh, I haven't written anything yet. I'm still forming my ideas. Um, it, it's sort of like designing a complex software system in that you want to look at how can this thing get gamed? You know, mm -hmm. can it get into failure states right. or, or bad modes? Uh, and so try to think through as many implications as you can and try to, however you do it, it's going to be biased one way or another. Mm -hmm. And I want to figure out a way to bias it in favor of unborn generations. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. I'd be curious to know what your influences are, but we can probably just take that offline. Um, all right, well, let's do some picks. Now, since uh, you picked Game of Thrones last time, I've actually finished the series, so I have to... <laughs> it was good. I wasn't as angry about the ending as, as some people were, but yeah. Uh, so they did this really interesting thing where um, they set you up for a particular course, and all along they prepared you for the fact that we are really devious and things don't work the yeah. way they, they work. Like we'll kill off the guy who looks like he's going to be the hero of the whole thing in the first yep. season. Yep. That should have tipped people off on what their expectations should be, but they didn't. They thought it, they had gotten that stuff out of their system and it was going to be kind of conventional going up to the end. Yeah. And it wasn't. And so they were blindsided by this thing. But if you look at it with awareness that that was going to happen, yeah, of course that's, that was going yeah. to happen. Uh, I, just in case anyone hasn't seen it yet, I don't want to get too specific. But they were enraged that they had been taken <laughs> and thought that they were made to feel foolish because a lot of these guys had been on YouTube and on the blogs mm -hmm. and all this stuff predicting what they thought was going to happen, and it went in a completely different way. And they, yeah. I guess they thought they looked silly. But I think it was just evidence that the show was really working. You know, they were, um, they were saying the last season was so badly written and that's because the guys who are doing the writing are totally incompetent and they're awful, which ignores the fact that this was one of the highest rated shows in the world. Something, yeah. a, a, a bloody medieval fantasy that does not become a popular show. Right. Right. Um, you know, Martin put a lot of brilliant stuff into the books, but that stuff doesn't get on the screen by itself. Right. You know, there was brilliant writing on that show which is why we loved it. That's why we watched yeah. it season after season after season and why we were so invested in the end. Yeah. Well, the other thing is with the final season, I'd, I'd heard that too before I'd even watched it. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to temper my expectations. But by the, by the end of the seventh season, I'm sitting there going, there's only one season left. How are they going to wrap all this stuff up? And so the fact that they got it all in and it, I didn't throw things at the TV at any point, I mean, that was a success. <laughs> so yeah, there, there were some areas where I thought they probably could have done a little cleaner job of this or that, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't that angry with it. Yeah. So people set this impossibly high standard for it. Yeah. And, and of course it didn't meet the impossibly high standard and they would yeah. not for, forgive it for, for having failed. 
but I think it was brilliant. I, I think it's the best show that has ever been made. Yeah, it, it was really good. I mean, the ending did throw me for a loop. I, I thought about it for a while and I realized that, yeah, they, they did kind of lead you into it, both to expect one outcome and then to actually expect the outcome you got. Like you start looking back at it and you're going, okay, maybe this and maybe this. And, you know, you stack enough of those together and you're going, okay, it was really hard to see it, but, you know, yeah. Anyway, anything you want to shout out shout about on this show? Uh, yeah, Ed Snowden's book, Permanent Record. Okay. Everybody should read that. Yeah, he, oh, boy. he is such an interesting person out there, too. We should bring him home. My biggest disappointment with the Obama administration is that they exiled him. Um, and it's completely ridiculous to think that Trump would bring him back, but maybe the next president, whoever that turns out to be, will finally exonerate him and, and let him return. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of see both sides of that issue, but I don't know enough about it to staunchly advocate for one outcome or the other. But yeah, a lot of people, you know, they, they tend to come down on one side or the other, and I just, I don't feel comfortable in either place. So uh, I do. I think he's a patriot. Yeah. He, he, he's a hero. He's a good American. Fair enough. We'll have to read the book. Um, anything else you want to shout out about? Nope. Okay. I just didn't want to cut you off before I jumped in. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've got a few picks. Um, one of the picks I have, and it's, it's kind of a really simple thing, but I've been traveling quite a bit lately. And um, I found that the neck pillows that they sell you at the airport, they just don't work for me. <laughs> they don't. Um, I, you know, I see people and they, you know, they, they walk around with them around their neck at the airport. I know a few people that just love them to death. They just don't work. Um, the way that I have to fly is I fly on a, win on a window seat so that I have something to lean against so I can sleep if I'm going to sleep. And then I just got one of the, they sell these at the airport too, but they're just like one big bag full of foam. And, you know, they, it, it's, it's the same kind of stuff as the neck pillows. But what I found is with that, it actually gives enough support to my neck and my head against the bulkhead of the plane to where I can actually get rest. And they're like 10 bucks. They're, it, was, it was a good deal for, for me. And so I have, I have a couple of them, and I just fly with one of those. Um, one other pick I have is um, the pillow I sleep on. I'm just going to pick pillows, I guess. I didn't really have a plan for this, but it came, came to mind. Um, it's called MyPillow. You can get it at MyPillow.com. Um, and they have like different fill thicknesses. But the thing that I found is that I'm really picky with pillows. And for years and years, I just, I hated the pillows that I got. Um, and the reason is, is that I like to have a lot more support and have my head propped up higher. And on with these pillows, over the course of the night, my head would sink into them. And uh, this pillow I bought and I, I didn't love it for the first year. And then I figured out that they're designed so that when you push the ends in, it fluffs the pillow back up and it'll stay fluffed up for the whole night. So if you sleep on it night after night after night and you don't fluff it back up, then it'll collapse like the other pillows do. But once I figured that out, I just fluff it up every night and I get a good night's sleep on it every night. So I'm going to pick that. And uh, then the last thing I'm going to pick. Um, so my wife has trouble sleeping at night as well. And uh, I've been doing pretty much whatever I can to, um, to get her to the point where she can, you know, sleep well. And so I bought a chili pad and what it is, is, um, it runs distilled water through it, but it actually, you put it on top of your mattress under your sheet and it sets the temperature for the bed. So yeah, so you can set it, you know, 
to basically whatever you want. And so um, that's helped her and I both get better sleep. I didn't buy it for me, but it's worked out for me. So um, yeah, you can set the temperature in your bed and then you can rest and uh, yeah, and just get the rest you need there. So I'm going to pick that as well. All right, Doug, thank you for coming and talking to me again. You bet. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I'd love to just dive into more history and stuff with you and just, yeah, just see where you've been, but uh, we'll have to do that another time. All right, looking forward to it. All right. Well, in the meantime, folks, uh, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.